Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Comes a Time with Oteil Burbridge and Mike Fenoya. If you're digging the podcast, do these guys a favor and review and subscribe. It means a lot. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're joining for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. And now, here's Mike and Oteil. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time Podcast. That's Oteal. And that's Mike. Today we are joined once again by Dr. Stanley Krippner. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Sean Rubin uh, to discuss the memoirs of Dr. St- or Stanley, Dr. Stanley Krippner, now 91 years old. Yeah. Uh, born, born into the Depression, uh, has experienced, I mean, how many cycles of change in life and um three i mean these it, it i don't want to ruin i don't want to ruin a lot uh we record these after and it's hard because we get excited and we're kind of like you know but uh he's got memoirs coming out and um sean rubin was his student and also uh then partner and friend and mentor so uh it, it's a great chat uh, and we get into the importance of you know psychedelics and therapy. We get into a lot of great stuff. So enjoy he wrote it. that uh, book, "The Varieties of Anomalous Experience." <laughs> it's so funny because every time we're like mentioning something deeply historical, you know, like, and we're talking way back. He's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, that was a friend of mine, my friend." <laughs> Albert Hoffman, or like everybody was his, a friend. His of friend guy. founded cognitive behavioral therapy. That's just mind blowing to me. That's like, one of like you know. I know. It's like I oh, know. My. that's just one. That's yeah. just one. But anyway, the table, the round table he'll have when he passes on to the other side is going to be a, a sight. But thank you, Doctor Krippner, as always, and uh, just for being a, a straight up badass, really, um, and a truth teller, and. Uh, can't wait to see the the memoirs so um everyone listen to this watch it if you can um we're on uh youtube at comes a time podcast we're at patreon forward slash comes a time pod uh go to oteal.com for dates mikefenoya.com for dates uh like and share and subscribe and we shall see you soon peace out everyone Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. 
Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
great to have you guys here. So you're doing, is it a memoir or an autobiography? Both. What is it? Both. I'm not sure what the difference is, actually, but I think in my mind, they're the same thing. (laughs) Well, uh, not naturally. A memoir is a portion of somebody's life. Not an autobiography is the full, the full model, everything. Mine is a memoir because there are certain aspects of my life that I cannot discuss for legal reasons. So Mm. memoir is, or memoirs, plural, is a better description. Did you have uh, like NDAs and stuff that secret government projects or something or just... Uh, oh, not that need to be kept. Not at all. I'm. Uh, I've never been a big fan of the government and the future. The feeling is mutual. Hmm. <laughs> I'm with it. you 100 percent there, Doctor. <laughs> I don't understand people who want to lead. <laughs> well, I, one question I wanted to ask you was: um, Did you have? And this is going back. I'm trying to go back into your origin story. Was there someone in your family, like my mom and my family, my dad was the rationalist. My mom was like totally psychic. And so was there someone in your family that helped you to see with those other eyes? Or is it just something that you had? Were you an anomaly in in your family? No, there was really nobody in my family who I would consider psychic. And I don't even think that I'm unusually psychic. I was impacted by family members in other ways, but never got any lessons on becoming psychic. That was superfluous because remember, I was raised on a farm in the middle of the depression. So any little frills were not in the picture. It was basically uh, planning to pay bills and survive and eat until times changed. Mm. Yeah. And then times did change in the Second World War. And then after the Second World War ended, things were a little bit easier to uh, to follow and work through. I Not imagine. many people, so love alive, have any memories of the Second World War and I've got tons of memories of the Second World War. Yeah. Not many people have memories of the Depression either. <laughs> well, a lot of my memories are happy. A lot of my memories are sad. But uh, they both need to be discussed if I'm to do a credible job on my memoirs. How old were you during those times during the Depression? I was born in 1932. The Depression started in 1929. And the Depression ended with the money that went into military expenses during the Second World War, which started in late December 1941. You were born into it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that, like, in that, living in that time must have moved extremely slow. Um, I don't know why, but it's just always the thought that I had that it was a lot of waiting and it was a lot of pain and it was a lot of just like trying to figure out, like you said, it's just get to the next meal. 
stay warm, survive. Well, that's right. And what you just said characterizes millions of people in the world today. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep, you're right. And so to talk about something a little bit exotic and ephemeral is not helping them find a place to sleep at night or eat during the day. I wish it were. There's no Jesus on hand to use the loaves and the fishes and distribute it to hundreds of thousands of people. Where are the miracles now that we need them? Amen to that, huh? <laughs> That's yeah. right. Agree with you. How old are you now? When we, when I, I first caught up with you, you, I thought you were was you 90, 91? 91, you were absolutely right, yes. I, I felt bad because when you did that ESP experiment with uh, Billy Strings, that was a recreation of the one in the 70s that you did with the Grateful Dead. Um, yes. I was so shocked because I knew about you. I think I had watched some of your videos on Jeffrey Mishlove or something like that. And um, I was like, he's still alive? I was like, oh, my God, he's so incredibly lucid. Well, like, many you know. <laughs> people are still saying that. They had, oh, I thought you were dead. Are you still with us? <laughs> That's got to be a crazy point in your life to get to and be like, man, I thought you were dead. And I was like, wow, yeah. is that a thing now? It's <laughs> <laughs> great, though. I'm so glad that uh, getting to see you talk that night. I was like, how, like, how did you get to meet the Grateful Dead? Like, what was, what precipitated that? I had a close friend by the name of Jean Molay, who I discuss in my memoirs. Of course, she lived quite a colorful life. And she invited me to a birthday party for Alaraka, the great oh. Indian tabla player. Yes. And when I arrived at the apartment for the party, Jean says, by the way, there's a drummer who is coming tonight, and he wants to talk to you about hypnosis. Hmm. And I said, fine. And so a little later, Mickey Hart came in, and he made a very, very dramatic entrance <laughs> with a black ponytail in a black and white harlequin checkered suit on. Very colorful. And he wanted to talk to me about what he was doing with his own students through hypnosis. So we went to a private room and we went through what he was trying to do. And it was basically focusing of attention and providing the optimism and the energy that they'd be able to master the instrument. Mickey is a multi-percussionist and he also is fairly good on other instruments also. And so he had a number of students and so we went through the routines and I said if anybody objects to the word hypnosis use the word suggestion. But for some people, if they think they're going to be hypnotized, that makes them even more receptive to the suggestion. So you have oh. to gear this from person to person. Mm -hmm. So we finished our interview. <clears throat> Mickey got up and was heading for the door. He said, by the way, do you like rock music? 
And I was one rock these things. I was just to hear the Grateful Dead two nights ago. And then he beamed from ear to ear. Oh, then you heard me play. <laughs> so that's how I got acquainted with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences recently where um, I've been doing ketamine-assisted therapy for depression, and uh, I've had, I don't want to say it's near death, I want to say it's uh, more death-accepting experiences where I think a lot of us struggle with like, you know, I hope there is easier than here kind of or something like that, and we have fear about the crossing over and all of that. And I'd say that in a lot of my experiences, the best feeling I had was if it ends here now, I'm okay with it. And it's this feeling of almost kind of like excitement or anticipation, not in any sense of like wanting death, but just it's okay. It's not, it's a natural thing that happens to all of us and it's nothing to be afraid of. And that to me has been an incredibly life changing. And as I'm aging, um, making more peace with uh, that unknown. Maybe the unknown doesn't feel so as unknown anymore. I hope that makes sense. It's hard to put into words some of these things that we experience. No, you're very articulate. That's really a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. And your I friend hope. also, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's super important to uh, to realize that, that while we're here, we're always trying to, we have our hopes, right? I think I've always thought about the afterlife and I've wished that when I get there, I'm greeted by this kind of Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life. And he goes, here's let me go and bring you all the answers to all the questions that you've had and uh, all the wonders. And it's like, you know, we take this quiz that's life and then we hand it in when we when we move on. And I hope we get to see our score. You know, yeah, yeah. and uh, I've always thought about that because I don't have really any concern about, you know, the organized religion part of things was always sort of like force fed. But I know that, you know, our intuition and our when we have these experiences where we can maybe put the, um, you know, the human nature stuff down a notch and uh, wonder and admitting we don't know and being OK with the I don't know. That's really where, where like the real magic happens, I feel. Yes, indeed. I can understand that, right? Yeah. Yeah, if you're in ketamine-assisted therapy, you might have similar insights as time goes on. I have been in touch with some Russian investigators who I think were the first to use ketamine for therapy. It's basically an animal tranquilizer, as you know. Right. And the uh, results that they had in St. Petersburg were very successful. And now it came to the United States. And now I get these reports like yours. Many people who are being helped by by ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, but psilocybin. Yes. assisted psychotherapy 
And in a few cases, LSD-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, the important thing is not to look at ketamine and psilocybin and LSD as medicine. If it were medicine, you would simply take it and hope for the best. Right. No, it's something that's uh, it's often called entheogenic, the divine within. Make a contact with the wisdom of your deeper self and using that when you go back into the outside world. Yes. There are some people, uh, and I hope this doesn't happen, they're going to take the hallucinogenic aspects out of psilocybin so people don't have visions and uh, mm -hmm. visions and ruminations. They just take it like a medicine. I don't think that's going to work as well. I agree with you. I agree with and, you. But all of this is so interesting to me because I could, I was, in my memoirs tell the story, was one of the research participants for Timothy Leary's work at Harvard University. Yeah. And that's how I got involved in psychedelics. And I could immediately see the therapeutic implications as could many other people. And then the government cracked down on everything. And I've waited almost half a century to see psychedelic assisted psychotherapy finally come to the forefront and be used to help so many people. Yes. I, I... Recently, I was at the psychedelic science conference in Denver, Colorado. I was there and too. They had, <laughs> yeah, they had signs all over the place. Welcome psychedelic science. Welcome psychedelic science. Now, 10 years ago, they would have put people in jail who were doing psychedelic <laughs> I know. science. I know. It's... <laughs> Times have changed, right? You know, in fact, I heard from uh, folks who worked at that convention center that years before when they did the cannabis convention, uh, the psychedelic convention was more calm, more peaceful, more academic, more, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say like tame in nature, but there were, uh, you know, people were walking out of the cannabis conference with like backpacks full of marijuana, <laughs> you know, um, at this conference at PS 2023, you know, if anyone was giving anything away, people at the conference went and shut it down and said, like, you know, we need to tread. That's the it, it's a scary slope because there's so much great progress happening that, you know, all all research, all work needs to be taken seriously because one black eye on the you know face of this movement could really set the whole thing back a decade or two and and that would be de really detrimental at this point. Oh, you're very, very right. The opponents of this type of therapy are in the wings waiting for somebody to kill themselves, kill others, etc., and blame yeah. it on the uh, psychedelic therapy. Right, right, exactly. That's very true. Um, now, I have a whole chapter in my memoirs called Reefer Madness. And that traces what I learned about marijuana over the years. And one evening, I was with Timothy Leary and some students from MIT in Boston, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 
yep. came into this him, and they were saying, we've been smoking marijuana, and we have some of the same effects that you're reporting from LSD. So that was Timothy Leary's introduction, as far as I know, to the topic of marijuana. And about six months after that, I was at a party in Greenwich Village in honor of Timothy Leary, and they were passing around a joint. So that was my first experience with marijuana myself, also tied in with Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was always very good to me and always very kind and supportive to me. So I don't like to say too many negative things about him. But his advocacy of tune in and drop out after taking LSD was sort of a simplistic approach that I could never quite buy yeah. myself. And also, psychedelic therapy went back much further than Timothy Leary and the Harvard Project. God, yeah. Yeah. When, uh, it goes back to early psyche, psychedelic uh, assisted experiments in psychiatry with people who were using it to treat alcoholics. Mm. So there's a whole legacy of LSD psychotherapy before Timothy Leary. One journalist said, well, Timothy Leary did not, did not start psychedelic research, but he ended psychedelic research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> yes. Yep. And then it takes someone like Rick Doblin to bring it back into the into the, the mainstream. Oh, my God. Rick yeah. Doblin has been doing such an incredible job. I've known him yes. for a long time. And I One mean, of my favorite people in the world. Oh, absolutely. For him to go to Harvard and work on a PhD in public policy, that is not easy. But it yeah. gave him the credentials he needed to make the ages, to make the innovations and changes in his faith. Yeah, yeah. He he Is really Albert Hoffman doing that like since the beginning, like. Yes, of course. Albert yeah. Hoffman was a good friend of mine, but remember, he was not a psychotherapist. Ah, he was and a chemist, more of a chemist. He was a chemist. That's right. Yeah, I got you. I actually had the great honor of being invited to speak at at uh, Albert Hoffman's one hundredth birthday party. Yeah. Yes, and it was quite a festive affair. And just two years before that, I'd been visiting him in his home in Switzerland. And neither one of us had any idea that the Swiss would actually arrange this big extravagant birthday party in his honor. I'm just glad, again, that he lived long enough to see his work uh, Honored yeah. and respected in the North Way. Yeah, Amen. You know, I, I, I'll, I want to, I want to uh, echo what you said there about the whole turn on, tune in, drop out, and the whole like how it's not that easy, it, 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 especially when it comes to therapy and therapeutic, you know, uh, modalities. I would say that it as equal in importance the ketamine and psilocybin and all of that was the incredible cognitive behavioral therapy that I did along with it. It's not a 
like you said, you take a pill and hope for the best. It's not cholesterol medicine. It's, it's a, it's a tool to do the work. And I'd say that if it wasn't for the professionals that did that cognitive behavioral therapy and taught me the tools that maybe ketamine was more like the grease that made those gears move or mushrooms were kind of like the, the WD 40 to loosen up those kind of (laughs) bolts that have been locked in place. Uh, You still have to turn the wrench. You still have to do the work. And I think that's that's what's the important thing that I, I hope a lot of folks in this movement reiterate. It's a, you know, I can only speak for myself. It was like a 12 to 16 month endeavor of like real deal work. work. It was work. work. Yeah. And it is when the shamans do it too. They're like, it's not just like entertainment. There's a process to it. And, and, you know, when you go back and read, like, uh, I was reading, uh, or listening to maybe on the audio books of the Ram Das. You realize like the amounts of acid that they were doing back then. <laughs> Timothy Leary, you know, like they didn't know, I guess, I, but really gargantuan amounts mm-hmm. of LSD, which if you're yeah, struggling the, like, mentally, jars, like basically, yeah. Yeah. If you're struggling mentally, that's not the route to go. You're just going to be gone out to lost at sea. So this is not, yeah, that's not the necessarily the approach we want to take. When I heard Timothy Leary address a huge audience suggesting LSD once a week, marijuana every day. About my God, there was the neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know what the cops heard? The cops heard yes. overtime. The cops yeah, heard, yeah. all right, let's get Quota's going to get met every month. Yeah. No problem. Let's get that new car. Yes, but you talk about the indigenous people who have been using psychedelics for ages and they use it for healing purposes and spiritual purposes as part of a well-designed ritual. Right. I actually had the great fortune of getting to meet Maria Sabina, the shaman in Mexico, who actually introduced the world to the psychedelic uh, mushrooms. Wow, you got to meet her. Wow. You met everybody. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, And you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. One of my good friends was Albert Ellis, who founded cognitive behavior therapy. And so he initiated, along with a psychiatrist along the way, to put cognitive behavior therapy on the map. And now, of course, it's being practiced everywhere. Again, Again, it has to be focused. Again, it's not a magic wand. It's hard work for both the therapist and the client. Right, right. And and for the lay person who may be listening, who's interested, you know, I personally, because I've gone to many different therapists, I kind of feel like, you know, there is this uh, stigma or, or maybe like a stereotype to talk therapy, like, well, time's up, same time next week. And it's sort of just that unended until you decide to stop cognitive behavioral therapy was you get tools to literally analyze and interpret your way of thinking and say on a scale of one to a hundred 
How possible is this to be true? And if it is, is there evidence to support it? Is there evidence to support otherwise? If this does happen, this fear, uh, am I going to die? How strong of a thing? Like it literally gives you a new way to self uh, police or self administer. the, The liar. Well, the and a lot of it's not. It's no. like, oh, it's all going to go. It's, it's all going like, to go bad. No, it's not. And there could be validity to some of it, but it's also, you know, it's not going to kill me. It get, it lets yeah. you, you know, compartmentalize those thoughts. So I, I, yeah. I yeah. I'd say out of all of them, I, I, we got work I should, done. We went in and we did the work. So, yeah, I should add that you can also use psychoassisted psychotherapy with a humanistic or a positive psychology orientation, or even yes. a psychodynamic orientation. So it works very well with cognitive behavior therapy, but also works pretty well with some other approaches to psychotherapy. Yes. It's all about the work. That's the, the therapy that I started in like 98, 99, um, where I first, that was the first time I ever did it. It's the first toolkit I was ever handed and say, look at this tool, it does it. Man, stuff that's happening in my life right now, I'm seeing the connection to back then and be like, yeah, you applied this in this way since then, since then, and this is why you're here at this point now. Just like building mm-hmm. steps up. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I realize how valuable those that first toolkit was and that first therapist was and the whole journey along, like not yeah. finding the right one, you move, you got to find another one. And you get, ah, da, da, da. Yeah, but, but all yeah. that is part of this work, this journey on self-improvement and, yeah. and growing in awareness and expanding. And it's, it's not, it's, it's so not a take this pill. And, well, and also, and also <laughs> like so you're saying, that. like you're saying, Otiel, like sometimes when you're going for help, you're at your wits end and you, to be able to make the, like lucid make the conscious decision this therapist is not for me that sometimes is the hardest thing to do because you have to stand up for yourself and you have to say this person's not the right you have to break up with this stranger and then go find another one in your insurance network also but also when you can trust when you think you can trust your brain the least that's what I mean. Because <laughs> now I'm at yeah. my wits end. It's like, yeah. oh, so now I got to trust myself now. This guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing or she yeah. doesn't get me or we're not. But you do. And that's that's that work. It's all You work. know, it's like yeah. it's life. It's The stakes are high, man, mm. folks. We, You know, uh, Dr. Krippner, one of the things I wanted to bring up to you, and it's uh, from whether it's I've tried a lot of things to, you know, in my life. I've always knew there was something maybe more out there than the surface level or, or, you know, and what I have found the moment of uh, relief or the moment of peace or transcendence, whether it is transcendental meditation or whether it's a sensory deprivation tank or psilocybin or ketamine therapy or whatever it may be, the thing that always seems to get me there, that place, it's a very silent, uh, um, it's a silent, deep space where just uh, human noise doesn't necessarily exist. Human time is not important. It's a, it's like a suspended animation type feeling. And 
I can imagine that that is a palette for experiencing those astral projective moments and those uh, moments of like um, maybe entering into that door into the next uh, the next world. I don't know what that moment is, and it's hard to put it into words because it's nothing we experience. But it's like when you get there, something in there says you're here, you've arrived. And and that's the moment that I don't want to say I chase, but it's a it, it's a very important place to go when we're trying to achieve, you know, that higher state or next step or new chapter or whatever it may be. And I'm not even quite sure what I'm asking you, but is that something you've heard before or is that something you've experienced? Is that is that place only in my imagining it? Because it's nothing I really talk about with anyone, you know. Well, no, no, I've heard some of the reports you know, for decades, but you are very articulate. You put it very, very well. You should get that uh, disc or print or something. You did give them such a good deal of description. Thank you. Very, very impressive. Yes. It's peaceful. It's uh, there's no noise oh. there, and I think a lot of folks that deal with you know, the stressors and the anxieties and the noise and the criticism in their head. You know, Bob Roth, who taught, who you know, Transcendental Meditation, he says, we live on the surface where all the bubbles are and it's very noisy and chattery and the waves are crashing. But it, when you transcend, you're down at the bottom. You're where the bubbles are beginning and it's nice and quiet and peaceful. Yeah. And even if it's one out of 20, one out of 100 meditations, when you do get there, like that's where the profound rest happens and you get that break from yeah. just being a human um, it's like when you scuba dive i can only imagine <laughs> when you get, i wish when i you could get down, yeah man yeah. when you get down there as a second you're away from the surface and the bubbles and all the waves yeah. and everything just becomes still it's why the astronauts they always come back changed when yes. they go out into that thing because you're beyond all that it's total quiet it's total the unknown and they look at the earth as this little thing and then they come back different they edgar mitchell all these guys you know he started uh the institute of noetic sciences or whatever like ions i think it's you know i feel as soon as i get down below the surface scuba diving it's like whoa it feels like you're in outer space it feels like an automatic meditation. Like you try to get there and still and all this stuff, boy, go underwater, boom. <laughs> it's immediate. Mm. You well, know? Edgar Mitchell was a good friend of mine. I really miss him. We go back many, many years. And he had the vision looking at the little tiny earth as a blue ball from outer space, it really changed his life. And he founded the Institute of Nordic Sciences, as you mentioned, of which I'm a member. And being a member, I get access to all sorts of interesting recordings and gifts and opportunities. So his IONS group is going strong. And again, it's resulted from his vision on outer space. The name of my memoir is A Chaotic Life, because in chaos theory, a little tiny intervention often has unpredictable results. Right. Like when Mickey Hart said, you like rock music, 
that one sentence had completely unpredictable results, introduced me not only the Grateful Dead, but the Rolling Thunder, the, the American medicine man who I worked with for 20 years, etc. And so by following the thread of the initial experience, you don't really know the direction it's going. You just have to follow all the directions because it's not a simple linear cause and effect thing at all. <laughs> I love that idea of the intervention. This is what all the mystical traditions talk about. Uh, I guess they call it grace, yes. right? Like Abraham Joshua Heschel, his book, God in Search of Man. He's like, you have it backwards. Yes, the story of the Bible is not man in search of God. The story of God, the story of the Bible is God in search of man. If a woman has a child and that child gets lost, she's just not waiting around for the kid to find its way home. Maybe she's out there looking for it. She's seeking to intervene. And so in this chaos, which I feel like this time is, we're coming into a time of much like the end of something and the beginning of something new, it's going to look like chaos. And I feel like I believe in that little intervention that might just disturb everything and send it off into a good direction. You know, that's, uh, I got to look into this chaos theory more. I hear about it, but I haven't, I have not studied it that much. Well, you're very articulate in terms of, what you're talking about, so this will tie the intervention. And it has happened time and time again in my life. I had a cousin, Marsha Gates, who was captured as a nurse by the Japanese during the Second World War, spent the years in the Filipino camp, and when she came back, I could tell that she was very, very different. I didn't realize that she had post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. But that conversation had unpredictable results because now I have written three books about war trauma, several articles on post-traumatic stress disorder, <clears throat> and have advocated the use of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD. And Rick Dobble is always so happy with one extra person with PTSD is added to the subject pool. Right. I, it's very, very frustrating. There should be hundreds of people with PTSD uh, who are part of uh, part of the experiments to be charted through. Yeah, yeah. And as Absolutely. you say, you can combine cognitive behavior therapy or any number of other effective psychotherapies with psychedelics and ketamine and with the right type of set, setting and substance you can have something very positive come out of it couldn't agree with you more and i and i'm you know i feel for your cousin and i feel for all of the folks who have you know that like wartime ptsd and mm -hmm. and you know service work ptsd I would say too that I think we're all starting to experience that life is mm -hmm. uh, P is, is T. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wish almost we came up with another acronym or something for lifetime 
stress disorder because some of the folks who, you know, I, 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 the, the people who serve our country and the people who experience these, you know, hor- just horrible experiences that they see something or feel something or, you know, go through that trauma. There are folks going through things on a day to day basis. Like you mentioned earlier, Dr. Kribner, like these children who like aren't being fed every day. That's a big T to carry around. That's trauma. And that's yeah. hoping that, you know, uh, once we start to see these things, these medicines, these, um, you know, therapeutic practices all in tandem, you know, not just one magic pill or one, one trip, um, we're all benefiting from it if we're open to it and willing to do the work. And, and I think those of us who have had those experiences of trauma and then taking the long journey to fix it really need to tell that story more and let folks realize that, you know, trauma is, is part of life. I mean, I just had an MRI on my spine and the doctor said, you see these vertebrae, you see how thick and, you know, like they are, they're, they're full now in 30 years, they're going to be hollowed out and dehydrated. That's a stressor. <laughs> that's a physical <laughs> stressor right there. That's like, okay, so how's that not trauma <laughs> in some way? You know what I mean? So the fact that we're life is like when you're born, you start dealing with trauma and, and it's, you know, yeah. maybe unintentional. It may be war. It could be, you know, uh, neglect. It could there's be hunger. definitely, definitely people going through war. Like, you know, I live in a nice neighborhood, but who knows, 10 houses down, there may be some child growing up in an absolute nightmare. Policemen, firemen, Right, abuse, who knows what kind of multiple layers of abuse. Yeah, like whatever it is. All the buffet, all the flavors Mm -hmm. that are there. You don't have to be out in war. You could be, because if you're small, if you're a child that you're most vulnerable, then it's like, yeah, I mean, just like, and they've definitely got PTSD. You know, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's uh, yeah. well, it's the first noble truth of Buddhism: suffering. All of life you is know. suffering. Christianity, yeah. take up your cross. Like it's it's focused yeah. on this is a reality, a big one we got to deal with, and we're all gonna. And I, yeah, you know, just and, and getting I, here, the trauma of childbirth. Right? <laughs> you know? And and Otiel, I'll tell you that, like in that moment, in the moments of the the ketamine treatments or the psilocybin experiences i would have these kind of like moment of like oh like it's okay like i finally saw it for the size that it deserved you know when you look in the mirror and it says objects in mirror are larger than they appear you know <laughs> this was like i saw i turned and saw it and i'm like i got this like it's okay it's it's it, and that is the experience that like that's flipping the record and listening to a new yeah. song, not that same song over and yeah. over again. What a moment I want of everyone grace to that be, is, man. I want everybody to be able to experience that and have the courage to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We can. I want to get back to music for a minute because music plays a very important part in many people's trips. Yes. And yes. Absolutely. Stan, yeah, I met Stan Groff for the first time when he came to the United States 
and we had a little soiree at Gene Houston Robert Masters' home. And I've been following his work ever since. And as you know, he has a holotropic breathwork system where people can enter in an altered state without drugs, but with music. Right. And I underwent his breathing session to see what it was like, was very impressed. And I started to do sessions on my own, and Sam gave me a cassette, exactly the same music that he had been using. And the music is so incredible, because you can see it start out very, very slowly, and then reaching a higher intensity as either the breathing goes on or the drug goes on, and then gently resuming. Yeah. Yeah, so music is very, very key. I don't do holotropic rhetoric anymore because now there are plenty of people that Sam has trained to do holotropic breathwork and even have certificates uh, to back them up. Right. That's I think very Africans true. Africans have been doing that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with the yeah. yeah, with the drums and the dance and the it definitely changes your breathing. Like so much of this I access through music, you know, like I was able to reach meditative states in music, playing music. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, just hitting a cymbal, just and the vibrations. Uh I see my son do it, you know, mm. but um, it's definitely, it's, we're wired for it. We are created this way for exactly that. You know, that's mm. why music, you know, they say like we already have the cannabinoid receptors in our brain, like our brains already made for it. Sure. <laughs> They're made for each other. And our yeah. just, our paradigm has just, tried to talk us out of it you know but like here's a great intervention into the chaos you know i always think of mk ultra and they tried to use this thing for mind control and then this little intervention happened and say give it to ken kesey <laughs> yeah. just My man. backfired 180 yeah. degrees that's Absolutely. why i say i always look for it you know like i believe in it like, I don't believe in a specific religion, but I believe in that, whatever that is, that will intervene mm. in that chaos. Like, I'm waiting on you, baby. Come on for that next yeah. one. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you talk about MK Ultra. Some of your viewers and listeners might not have heard of that, but it was a code name for government-sponsored research in LSD. They did a very, very bad job of it. They thought yes, it could be used for espionage purposes. And, and for mind control, right? Oh, good heavens, yes. A friend of mine was actually in the military, and his whole battalion was given LSD as part of that experiment without any preparation. Yeah. They just wanted to see what would happen. I mean, fine. Do that maybe with rats or with monkeys or yeah. nowadays with artificial intelligence. But don't do that with members of the military, with human beings who don't know what's happening. Yeah. No. And what was the dosage? What was the dosage? Right? Yeah, I bet sometimes you they didn't microdose. Yeah. yeah, I bet you they didn't microdose him. 
Uh, I yeah. bet we would be shocked at what they gave it. It'd be like, oh, it was 700 mics. Like, what? Yeah, I, know. I don't know. I'm not saying that's what it was, but I'm like, you know, Leary and those guys were doing like enormous amounts because who they were, they didn't know any, you know, oh man. Well, they were, and they were giving it to uh, microdose when you don't know it's coming could be a, a real yeah a little rattler, bit of a like know? what's going on but they were giving it to uh they had prostitutes this is how devilish these guys yes, are yes. prostitutes giving it to their johns in san francisco without them knowing it that's right again i wonder what the dosage was mm. this is some devilish stuff man and but didn't work did it it did not work. <laughs> Little interventions happened. It yes. Is, it is. I a, take the MK Ultra did more damage to LSD therapy than anything that Timothy Leary did. Of course. Yes. At Absolutely. least Timothy Leary's heart was in the right place. Yes. Yes. Amen. And Amen. he was out there. And he he wasn't. He told you. It. Yes. He, said, he told this you. This is me. This is what I'm doing. It wasn't. Oh, look away while I put my hand in your oatmeal. That's right, yeah. yes. And you yeah. know, when I did it, when I was, uh, what was I, 18, 17, was I, uh, right after I graduated high school. Now, my friends were all, you know, they weren't doing like extreme, like crazy dope. They weren't doing like five hits of acid, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but we had this stuff called King Tut, you know, and I've had always the Egyptian. I'm always with ah. the Egyptian stuff. And um, I said, you know, I think I'm just what you guys are doing. And you were talking these little teeny squares. Man, I got me a little bitty scissors and I cut that mug in half. <laughs> I was about to cut yeah. it in half again. I was like, let me just see what half of what y'all doing, you know. So you, if, if you had a little common sense yourself, because I had fear, the good kind of fear. I was like, hey, this is definitely messing with your brain chemistry. It's a little teeny piece of paper. So how about I just like, I went into it scared, thankfully, and kind of microdosed myself, you know. Mm. But uh, not every, if you're not even, it, it, at least Leary was like up front, you know. It, yeah. You could have the opportunity to go, hey, could I do half that yeah. or a quarter of that, you know. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with, yeah. Good fear. And I will, I'd like to echo your sentiment on the music and how important it is too, because as we're talking about these, you know, moments that turn into, you know, a, a song in a, in a recent psilocybin experience, the music that the, uh, I'd say sitter who was with me, I'm not sure of the right term. She was, it was an amazing woman who kind of sat with me to make sure everything was okay. You know, it was the first time I'd ever done it with intent to do work. Um, she provided a soundtrack. And like you had mentioned, Dr. Krippner, it was like each song had a, a, bu a, a build and it was tension and release. It was like, a, 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 you know, this climbing and real depth and a, like a sonic sort of like architecture to it. And then there was a big like, you know, climax moment. And each song was almost kind of like a vignette or a short story that it just jived perfectly with the psilocybin. And I got, it was like, I was going through these adventures and the song length and the song tempo and the song structure sort of helped me navigate these experiences that I needed to go through. And they were the perfect length. 
and they were the perfect tempo and perfect volume and all of it. Whoa. And and in and in and in the opposite, because I always like to look at both sides of the coin. The next time I did a larger, you know, experience with her, um, the music was was off, and I was off, mm. and we didn't jive, mm. and it was a really really rough. I never achieved like. It was turbulent. That's the best word I can use for it is I never got out of the clouds. Oh, and interesting. I was almost trying to force things and it, it, yeah. it was just we never hit. So it's not, you know, you're, you're, it's not like a home run every time. No. You know, and these are the things that I think are important for people to know that yeah. you're not always going to get the what you want. It's not always going to be perfect bliss. It's going to be. Yeah. You don't win every soccer game. No, you know, right? You know what I mean? Like it's like painting music. You know, we have a jam, and we're like, ah, just never. Yeah, we're one for lack of trying. Jokes fall flat. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to like sync up. There's all these things. It's like magic. They all have to come together, and when you get that, yeah. But you have to be. It's like relationships. Yeah, it's everything. You have to be willing to keep going if it doesn't. That's the work part. We we keep going back. You know. But the wrong music could really throw a trip into a wrong into a spiral <laughs> you know i just heard that really i i told this i translated this over to my kids in a different subject but i was watching a ufo podcast and they were talking it was christopher bledsoe who you might be familiar with dr Krypton. i don't know he's one of yeah, the newer huh? ones to come out but he's he said they they can make themselves invisible and one of them told him i think it was a lady said to him, if you whistle, or maybe it was one of the three-letter agency guys, he said, if you sing a song either in your mind or physically or like whistle, they can't cloak themselves. Something about music is they can't penetrate it, right? And so I told my kids this about the elves because we leave little offerings for the elves. I was like, if you see a little one move and he disappears, start whistling a song, you know, and then you'll be able to see it. (laughs) There's something about that music thing, like people that are catatonic, you know, and then they play their old favorite music and they just like come right out. It just cuts through everything. It was like that experience you had with your dad, like when you were playing jazz with your dad. My dad was like 90 years old and he was way out there with dementia. And Uh so I had this stuff that they make and, Denver called the goo. It looks like a little Tootsie Roll. And you just like, it's the size of half a kernel of rice is what I would do to just mm-hmm. microdose at the time. I don't do it anymore. But I had this idea. My dad's religion was jazz. And so I had this idea to microdose him and then just DJ all his favorite old jazz records. So oh. I gave him the dose and I said, it's going to take about 30 minutes to kick in. And then my nephews are like, yeah, it's only been 15, but I'm pretty sure Pop Pop's kicking in. You know, I was like, all right, well, let's get this thing. And I literally just did it by the album cover. I just put in jazz on like Apple Music and I would scroll and I'd see an album cover from my childhood. I would just press on and he came oh, to right. life for like four to six hours straight singing complex bebop melodies. I never heard my dad sing. And he said, I was like, what? And my whole family was just freaking. They were like, this is the best day he's had in 10 wow. years. And mm-hmm. focused. I thought he was asleep one time because uh-huh. he was looking down like this. But he was listening to like train, Coltrane or something. 
And then it's his, as the sax went up, the music went up, he goes like this. And then when it went down, he went down. I was like, oh, he's just tracking with the music. It freaked me out, man. I mean, I knew, I suspected it would happen. What was the thing he said, too? Didn't he say something? Oh, hilarious? he was like, he's doing something. He's off in his own world, you know. And then all of a sudden, he looks up and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that is called Bebop. And then he went <laughs> right back down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, That's amazing. In, in human evolution, music probably came before a language. So yes. music yes. is so, uh, it, as you say, it's hardwired. If music did not help in some way or another, it never would have been passed on from generation to generation. But yes. the fact that there is a hardwired receptivity in music, one sort or another, shows how basic this is to the human condition. It is. It's yeah. the it's the arc that carries so many things. Like I used to read this about these guys would say, Oh, this rabbi has memorized the entire Old Testament. I'm like, okay, there but then when I found out if you go to a synagogue, all those Bible verses are sung. I was like, oh, yeah. he knows all the songs. Yeah. I know blues musicians who are practically speaking illiterate as far as reading and writing, but they know more, they know a hundred versions of Stormy Monday. They know a hundred, you know, like their, their brains. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you can memorize the whole Old Testament if you're seeing it. Mm -hmm. And so it's in every religion you will see this music and I think because of what you're saying Dr. Krippner I think it comes before sure language yeah you know language is the yes. spell the spelling casting mm -hmm. a spell spelling part you know? I've always thought about that silly conversation that you have on the road when you're like just trying to stay awake driving and it's that like if you what's one sense that you couldn't live without and I'm always hearing I can not I could not imagine not being able to hear music i i just don't know how i would survive i mean literally can i tell you this story this this guy came out to our gig i'll never forget it it's my first gig when i was 19 years old it's top 40 band called the squares and this guy and his girlfriend came out and they were both deaf and they hit the dance floor and they were dancing all over yeah and i was like so I went up and talked to him. I was like, okay, I don't want to stereotype. But like, like, what are you getting out of this? You know? It is. If you, and this is what I, I didn't realize it then because I was 19 years old. But if you've seen this thing called somatics, where they put uh, sound, they feed it either onto a platform with sand on it or water. And it moves, and, yeah. And it makes geometric shapes. Right? Oh, mm -hmm. And this tone makes a hexagon, and then this tone makes, and it just shifts like this, and it shifts. But they're all these like defined shapes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we're like how much percent water? Like 80, 80, 90 percent water? 90 percent water, at least, yes. Those sound vibrations are hitting all the water in their body and making all those shapes. They may not hear it with the cochlear uh -huh. or whatever it's in our, I don't know what our ear anatomy is. But I think they're feel, and they told me they said we feel it, and they would yeah. have joy. They sure. were had the same look on their face as me and the guys that were playing it, and they were dancing much more yeah. in rhythm than a lot of the other people because they were like depending yeah. on the vibrations. 
I just it. it blew my mind, dude. I was like, yeah, and yeah, it blew my. I mind. have a former student, Henny Cooperstein, who works with autistic children, and many of them really cannot speak, but he she yeah. teaches them to play a musical instrument, yeah. and mm. so once they play the musical instrument, that gives them a new way of relating to the outside world. Ah, that's beautiful. Yes. Opens up another pathway. I saw one of those on Instagram recently. This little, it was an autistic kid. And somehow he got in front of a piano. And like a couple of weeks later, he's just like flying. Yeah. You're like, all right, what's what's up with that? And that person is uh, considered disabled. Yeah. <laughs> we got it wrong, man. Yeah, you've got to be careful when you throw those labels around. I know. That's true. That's <laughs> yeah. true. So the book, is it, um, what's the plan on release? And I know you said there's volumes. Is it all at once or is it going to be in pieces? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, so yes, it's going to be released all at once in uh, print and uh, electronic formats. And we're looking for a, a March release date. And uh, yeah, it'll be available through University Professors Press and then wherever else you might find your your books and buy them yeah wow, i hope amazing. ai can make uh it narrated by dr krippner on audible <laughs> so he doesn't have to do it but i just love your voice and your speech pattern <laughs> i would love to hear oh that thank book. you <laughs> you know like Nothing's read by you listening to the yeah the, yeah <laughs> when you when it's by the author it's the best it really yeah. is for sure <laughs> Well, we don't want to keep you forever, uh, but thank you so, so much for coming on. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, I know we didn't even really touch on so much that you've contributed to this planet, but uh, hopefully we'll have you back again, and I hope people will go out and uh, get these memoirs because this is really an incredible man, and uh, we're so lucky to have... Uh, living history of this kind for you i so i could go on and on i just just thank you thank oh you you're so e much. you're easily impressed but thank you <laughs> 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 too humble too humble thank you both so much goes. for joining us <laughs> thank you thank you, you guys next thank time you. Pantheon Media presents Comes a Time featuring Mike Finoia and Oteil Burbridge. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Produced and edited by Eric Limarenko and Stu Silverman. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Comes a Time with Mike Finoia and Oteil Burbridge. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're jonesing for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? 
Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.